When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, and welcome to Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. We are part of the Agora Podcast Network, which has a ton of exciting podcast podcasts that you should totally check out. Including a brand new one. Uh, it turns out that we at Agora have been looking for to expand our horizons a little bit beyond the history and politics and philosophy that we, you know, sort of humanities types have just settled down in a corner and decided is everything that's worth listening to. And we, uh, we ended up picking up Raven, who has a podcast called Tiny Vampires, which you can find at tinyvampires.com. It's a podcast about disease, science, and blood-sucking insects, of course, <laughs> in particular mosquitoes. There's a lot of parasites going on here. I'm going to be honest, I haven't listened to it because I get just so squeamed by... Uh, parasites and mosquitoes, they freak me out. However, uh, the episode I need to listen to that's on my queue is episode one from back in November, which is our mosquitoes that carry Zika virus already in the United States. And I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. Are there places I shouldn't go? Uh, should I try to not get pregnant? Uh, I've been trying that recently. It's been working pretty well, but should I continue to try? I don't know. Raven is really cool. I know that. And she's super smart. She knows her game. So tinyvampires.com is where you can find her or, of course, on Agora or anywhere that you find great podcasts. Check it out. So today we're going to talk about something that really impacts geopolitics everywhere. And we kind of talked about it a little bit last year on an episode about oil prices. And that is shale. Shale, shale. What is shale, Eric? It's a rock. It's a rock. But I, what, why, why is this particular rock important? Oh, why do we care about it? Oh, that's a different question entirely, man. Thanks. So why, here's why we care about it. Shale. Shale is, uh, you know, it's a way that rock forms. It's like a sediment, I think, uh, which is a kind of rock. And the interesting thing about shale is that it has a lot of cracks in it. It's not a solid rock. If you look down, there's a whole lot of holes, and stuff fills in that holes. And guess what fills in that hole? Well, oil often, and 
natural gas sometimes. But because it's like in all these little cracks, it can be very hard to get to. So people have known that there's a lot of shale with tons of oil in it in the United States for, turns out, a very, very long time. But for a very long time, people said, I mean, we just can't get to it. It's not like, you know, in Saudi Arabia you just or Texas where you just stick a straw in there and you suck a little bit and then, you know, just... Uh, just put a pump in it and, and suck out oil for the next 400 years or something. No, you've got to do all sorts of crazy stuff to break up the shale and drill at it from funky angles to be able to get the stuff out. It's a mess. Uh, but it turns out that if you can afford to get it, and it is worth it to get it, there is a whole lot of oil and natural gas in shale in the United States. And step one to getting at this oil and natural gas in shale is shooting a bunch of water at it at a really, really high pressure until that shale rock fractures. Hence the name fracking. That's where the name comes from. And contrary to what a lot of people think, fracking is actually not a new technology. You might hear about the, the shale revolution and fracking becoming a big thing in the last five to ten years and all that. And it is true that the United States has begun extracting a lot more energy from its own reserves in the last couple of years, but this is not because fracking is a new technology. Fracking has been around since the 40s, and I think uh, the first company that ever commercially fracked a well was Halliburton, everyone's yeah. favorite company. Hey. What's, what's new, and what happened in the 1990s, is that fracking was combined with another technology called horizontal drilling. So instead dun, dun, dun. of... Dun, 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 so instead of drilling at an angle, like Eric just mentioned a moment ago, and Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood referred to as drinking your milkshake, instead, <laughs> uh, horizontal, horizontal drilling goes straight down for like a mile or several thousand feet until you get to that, that layer of sediment, that shale rock, and then it turns at essentially a 90-degree angle. So it's going parallel with that particular layer of shale. And then the fracking happens. You pump water through... And that water is combined with um, some sand to basically keep the little veins of oil open after the water fractures it. And there's also some chemicals, a very small percentage, like a fraction of a percent of the mixture is chemicals to keep bacteria from growing in the uh, fracking line and all that stuff. So what's happened is that in the 1990s, the development of horizontal drilling, the increase in oil prices... Uh, and, you know, combined with a general trend towards when technology's been around a little bit longer, it gets cheaper. Getting to the oil that was in the shale regions, particularly in the United States, suddenly became affordable. It crossed that magical line. Now, of course, the cost to get at different wells changes. So it's not like one day everyone woke up and realized that they could get at all the shale. But you get the idea. Oil got more expensive. Drilling got cheaper for shale oil, and suddenly we started producing a whole lot of shale oil. And you might be wondering, well, what is that price? And typically for shale oil, it's something like 40 to $60 per barrel is the break-even price. That is the price in which they make more money than they spend to get it. About 10 years ago, it was at 70 to $100, much higher. And you may remember that for a while, oil was above $100 per barrel, which actually helped accelerate the which actually helped accelerate the scale up of fracking as a way of extracting oil in the U.S. and natural gas. But then after the price of oil came back down, the technology operating costs had become a lot cheaper. And voila, you now have a massive 
oil revolution in the United States, which has doubled in 10 years the total oil output per day of the United States, which is just crazy. It's nuts. Yeah, so while Vladimir Putin in 2013 and 2014 was rubbing his hands with glee as he saw his tax revenues from oil-related activities just skyrocket, you had drilling companies in the U.S. going, oh, we can make money on this now. And now Russia's like, rut-row. Why is Russia like rut-row? <laughs> That's a technical <laughs> geopolitical term, rut-row. <laughs> it's like rut-row. <laughs> well, it turns out Russia is highly dependent on revenue generated from oil and gas activities. Not not as much now as it was a couple of years ago. I think in 2014, uh, something like 50% of all of their revenues came from oil and gas-related activities. That's decreased now from the best numbers that I've seen to about a third of the federal budget. And I'm not 100% clear yet. I need to dig into this. If that's because they have diversified their tax revenue streams or because they're just not getting as much from oil and gas, so it therefore takes a smaller portion of um, of the budget. It's probably a combination of both. But they are seeing their federal revenues dwindle, which means they need to cut expenses, which, guess what, impacts their defense budget. And that hurts their ability to project power in a bunch of different ways in a bunch of different regions. Now, let's think about this for a moment. This is just one example of a trail of cause and effect from, hey, this technology suddenly came to market to extract natural resources in some usually pretty kind of far out in the middle of nowhere places in the United States, to suddenly Russia is sort of wringing its hands and sweating a little bit over its geopolitical position in the world. And these are pretty tightly linked. And we're going to tell you the story about how the first led to the second. So as we said already, the United States has doubled its oil output and in fact has converted from becoming a net hydrocarbon importer to a net hydrocarbon exporter. It actually literally turned its shipping terminals along the Gulf of Mexico for liquefied natural gas from being in terminals to out terminals. It just picked them up, turned them around. Now we're exporting liquefied natural gas. We're importing much less oil. And in fact, the United States, because of this technological change, has the most recoverable oil in the world, more so than Saudi Arabia or Russia. And what does this mean for the United States, Sander? Well, it means that the United States is developing a new degree of geopolitical flexibility as it relates to their energy sources. Before, they so much of what the United States did, not everything, but a lot, really had to depend on securing transportation lines to and from the Middle East and, and ensuring that you know line structures and all that were maintained in such a way that we could keep getting oil from the sources that we needed it from. Now, we're not saying that the United States is not currently importing oil. They still are. Hydrocarbons includes a lot of different types of petroleum products, but it means that the U.S. is well on its way to not really needing Middle Eastern countries to supply it oil in the future. In particular, because even if we look north to Canada, our buddies up there on our northern border are actually producing a lot of oil themselves. Some of this is from the oil sands, which have been around since the 1960s in force, but also because there has been a bit of shale found in the Bakken region in Manitoba, um, and that has increased the oil production in Canada enough that they're actually building 
um, infrastructure to be able to take a lot of that oil by rail car over to the ref- big refinery in St. John, New Brunswick, which supplies most of the Northeast. Um, and also, as you guys may remember, the Keystone XL pipeline, which has been a pretty big controversial issue in both Canada and the United States, was designed to ship Canadian oil directly to the U.S. So what you see is the United States is shifting a lot of its import um, direction to Canada and saying, hey, we can get a lot more of the oil we need, not that we need as much import as we used to, from our buddies up north rather than having to rely on shipping it all the way across the Atlantic or even up from Venezuela. So this changes the United States um, strategy for securing its core resource interests dramatically. But Eric, I'm not your buddy, pal. I'm not your pal, guy. I'm not your guy, buddy. I'm not your buddy, pal. I'm not your pal. Okay, continuing. Uh, So what does this mean for... uh, Actually, before we go to the oil market generally, one more thing about Canada that, Eric, I know you're familiar with because when you Mm. were a consultant, Eric used to be uh, an operational consultant. He... You worked for... (laughs) (laughs) That guy. That guy. That guy over there, my buddy who's not my pal, you worked for a tar sands project up in Alberta. So you're, you're familiar with the market up there. And I think it's important yes. to, to note that even though Canada is beginning to frack more wells, a lot of their oil-related industry comes from these tar sands. And it's a, it's a far less diversified economy that's more resource and mineral dependent than the United States, right? Yeah, I mean, Canada survived, if we think about, you know, we, we could talk about Canada's economy for a long time, and they survived the uh, 2008 meltdown surprisingly well, due in part to a lot of regulatory stuff they had, which is great. But they also have been clocked pretty hard by the price of oil dropping as much as it has. And we'll get to the oil market in a moment. What that's what that's meant actually is that it is a lot harder to justify getting oil from a lot of new oil sands projects because you know we talked about the technology required to get to oil in shale, but it turns out that Canadian oil in the oil sands is way way harder to get. It is so crazy resource and energy intensive to get this oil. In particular, the newer projects are the ones that are harder to get because they've already gotten the easier ones. So what it meant was that Canada, when oil prices were over a hundred dollars a barrel, uh, they were predicting that they were going to be building massive new SAG-D facilities, which is steam-assisted gravity drainage. If you want to look it up, go to town. Uh, Facilities to get more and more oil from the oil sands. But when those prices collapsed, dozens of these projects actually got totally mothballed or shut down because it was just no longer affordable. They would be losing money every day if they continued to pump uh, oil out, or if they continued to build those facilities and then pump oil. And so the tar sands region or the oil sands region has been hit pretty hard by this oil price falling but the Bakken region in Manitoba is in part starting to make up for what they thought they'd be getting in the future so the introduction of profitable horizontal fracking and the declining break-even points per barrel in order to drill and get the stuff out of the ground truly has global implications. And a a dynamic has been established that basically goes like this. Oil prices go up, more 
wells are dr- more more fracking wells are drilled, more shale wells are drilled because a greater profit margin can be can be derived from each well. So more supply of oil goes to the market, which brings prices back down. So while you might have OPEC countries like Saudi Arabia, like Venezuela, working together in their cartel like they did in the 70s and trying to cut production in order to drive prices up, every time they do that now, there's this new element that they can't control, which is U.S. fracking supply that will just roll production back up whenever prices go back up, driving prices back down. And that that really has massive implications for countries that have essentially become petrostates like Saudi Arabia and to a lesser extent Russia, but also Russia and Venezuela. Yeah, so what's interesting about these fracking operations is that compared to something like the oil sands, they're very capital light. It just doesn't take that much stuff, that much steel to be able to set up one of these wells. And Throughout the 2000s, in particular in the Obama era, a lot of these guys popped up and they're these very small operations. I mean, it's essentially kind of the Wild West. You just have a couple dudes with some money and they'd set up a drill and they'd hire some people that were probably qualified and they'd just go to get to work. And it was able to happen surprisingly quickly. And so what it means for OPEC, uh, which is the cartel that Venezuela and Saudi Arabia are both part of, is that if they if they manage to crank up production enough to drop the prices so much that these operations are temporarily put out of business, it would have to be at one such a low price that Venezuela and Saudi Arabia would really be hurting as well. And two, once they turned back the flow a little bit to bring the price back up, well, you could just get another couple dudes with a couple bucks uh, and a few qualified people to be able to go bring these operations right back up again. It's something that is not very sticky. This op- These operations can scale with the price of oil really, really quickly, which is something that's sort of brand new. And it totally breaks the stranglehold that OPEC used to have on the global oil market. Yeah, I did a, a research piece on shale for my day job at Geopolitical Futures. And one of the more fascinating numbers that I came across is really how little capital is required to set up a new well. I mean, 20 years ago, if you're talking about like an offshore well, it might be like a billion dollars in capital to set something up that drills this big well and sits offshore and can actually pull the stuff out of the ground. But if you're talking about a shale well in certain places in the US, that could run you five to 10 million. And what a lot of people will do is they will drill wells, but not complete them. So there's a, there's a slightly you know different process to actually get the oil coming up out of the ground than just drilling it, and you can do the first part without expending even the full portion of that five to ten million dollars. So whenever oil prices come very low, you'll see an uptick in drilled but uncompleted wells, and they'll just wait. They'll just sit on their land. They have a lease on it for a certain number of years, and whenever the price goes back up. Then they just complete and start drilling, and supply comes back online. And the wall that Saudi Arabia and Venezuela and basically all the OPEC countries and countries that are dependent on oil revenues for their government budget, the wall they're backed up against is they can't keep oil prices down that long because their entire government budget and therefore the stability of their society depends on the price of oil. And here's their ultimate dilemma. The reason they would want to put these North American 
shale operations out of business is because since U.S. production has doubled and because the U.S. has so many or so much in the way of proven reserves, again, the most in the world, the United States, which is outside of the cartel, has a huge impact on the global oil price. And it's become, in a way that some analysts predict, I'm not an analyst, permanently low. So if we look back in 2008, oil, the, this is the WTI price for you oil nerds, uh, the oil price was $150 a barrel. Nuts. It's now at it's now at 47. It is a third of that. And this is an oil price that US companies can sustain. And so if you think about being Saudi Arabia, who got the vast majority of oil money from each barrel produced as a as a government, they got that oil money. They're now getting one third of what they used to get. Iraq is in a similar situation. You know, a lot of people talked about after the United States invasion, we'd somehow get all of the oil. I don't know why anyone thought this, but what happened was the Iraqi government just put out a contract bid where they said, we'll pay you X dollars per barrel of oil that you extract, lowest bidder wins. And China won because their labor's very cheap, so they were pulling out oil at like $2 a barrel, um, paid to them by the Iraqi government. And so the Iraqi government was getting out of that 150 148 instead of and, and now, instead of $148, they're getting $45 per barrel. So their their budget takes a massive hit. And for all of these petrostates, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Russia, Venezuela, their budgets are in big trouble. And they don't yet have other sources of revenue that are going to make up for this. These don't just come out of nowhere. And for you folks that are you know quick with numbers here, you might say... Well, wait a minute. Forty-five dollars. Saudi Arabia's break-even, if you're familiar with this, is kind of between ten and fifteen dollars. It's a lot easier to get oil out of the ground, so it's still profitable, right? What's the problem? The problem is that there there's this concept of break-even per oil, where you're making profits on each barrel, but then there's this concept of a fiscal break-even, which is the price at which Saudi Arabia or any country must sell a barrel of oil in order to break even on their budget and not run a deficit. And Saudi Arabia's fiscal deficit, according to, I think it was the IMF puts out these figures, it's about 80 to $85 for 2016. That means they really need to be making a lot of money on each barrel of oil in order to support all the social spending that they do. And they, Saudi Arabia does a lot of social spending. They subsidize oil for their country. The, the regime, to a certain degree, remains in power by paying different people, both in the royal family and administrators that they depend on to remain loyal to them. And Well, and not to mention they have a massive military budget compared to their GDP. In fact, one of the highest in the world as a percent of GDP that they use to throw their weight around uh, in the region, but also, you know, keep keep a lid on the, you know, on the Islamist factions that are in their own country. Completely. And while Saudi Arabia has been intervening in the civil war in Yemen for the last couple of years, I don't know if you caught this, but there was an email leak, I think that came out last month of the crown prince of Saudi Arabia from April. Uh, and he was emailing some, and I think it was a U.S. ambassador, but I actually forget who, basically saying that he would be willing to accept some sort of broker deal either from the U.S. or uh, someone else, basically to, to get Saudi Arabia out of this civil war because 
their back is up against the wall and they can't support the defense spending that they have been um, that, that they they have to in order to be this involved. It's also forcing them to take steps that they'd prefer not to. So in Saudi Arabia, the organization that, that gets all of their oil, drills and refines it, is called Saudi Aramco. It's it's one of the larger companies in the world. Uh, some of the royal family would have claimed that it's worth $2 trillion. I've read some slightly less biased evaluations from independent analysts saying it's more like $500 billion. But it's a big company. And this situation is forcing them to seek funds from different sources. So while this has been a privately held company forever, basically owned by the Saudi royal family, Saudi Arabia is now having to IPO Saudi Aramco. Now, it's not all wow. of it. I think they're they're only looking at like a 5% ownership stake that they would be selling to the public. But this forces greater transparency in the company's operations. It It's a gradual deterioration of the royal family's ownership. And really, they'd prefer not to, but they're just up against a wall. Well, and I mean, also, it's it's a short-term solution that creates more long-term problems. Because if you sell 5% of the company, it means that your future revenues from that company also drop by 5%. So you get a boon now to, you know, to help you get through the hard times. But... It's essentially like taking a loan. You're you're just praying that you're going to find some more revenue in the future or be able to cut costs. Otherwise, it's just going to hurt you in the long term. That's a tough move. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So another country that's highly dependent on oil and gas revenues is Venezuela. We talked about it some in, I think, two episodes ago when we did our show on Venezuela and North Korea, but they're... If, if, if you followed, if you're following them or you listen to their, our episode, are really struggling with a lot of social issues. Their budget, their finances are very tight. And right now they're kind of staying alive in part with the help of Rosneft, in part with the help of Goldman Sachs, that have been refinancing a lot of government debt. So, you know, when you have a lot of debt, you have dates on which payments are owed. And the schedule can align in such a way that sometimes you owe these balloon payments in very large amounts on certain dates. And Venezuela has kind of found itself in the situation where its prior payment schedule, uh, it, would, it would be really challenged to actually meet those payments. So it is working with Rosneft, which is the big Russian oil company, and different banks to try to term out their loan, which just means delay some of these big debt payments into the future. So they're buying time. However, the recent U.S. sanctions that um, were implemented last within the last month prohibit 
U.S. financial institutions from working with Venezuela. So no more banking services from Goldman uh, unless they find some sort of clever way to work around it. But in theory, the noose should be gradually tightening for Venezuela. They're running out of options for how to handle their debt. And if you think about the beginning of the Chavez regime, you know, sort of before it became a, a klepto state that went to hell in a handbasket, Venezuela is looking to be the big Spanish player in South America. It was going to be them and Brazil. And now Colombia and Argentina are on the rise. Venezuela is, you know, bo- both due to the way that Chavez handled the government, but also the fact that hey, he got away with it for a long time because oil prices are high, and now all of the sins of the Chavez regime are coming to bite Venezuela in the butt. Venezuela's ability to influence South America, um, and in particular, for example, influence how Colombia makes a deal with FARC, uh, is declining. They're seeing more constraints imposed on them because of these oil prices shifting. It's going to change how the future of South America, in particular for countries like Colombia, shakes out. So we see these reverberations happening in South America because of uh, a new technology to drill shale oil. And if you're interested in learning more about how Colombia is ending the longest civil war in the Western Hemisphere, five and a half decades, check out our episode on Colombia, the Colombian FARC agreement. We did two, actually, one before this referendum vote and one after, I think it's episode 18 or 19. And we need to update it because, you know, at the end of the referendum, which didn't go the way that we thought, anyone thought it would, we said, holy smokes, this war is not ending. But, of course, what happened was the players in the game are are committed enough to peace that they went back to the table, they're making new arrangements And we should at least do a blog post on what's going on there so we can give you guys an update. For sure. But the big story, or at least the biggest story from uh, the perspective of at least the West, uh, it's something we've implied already. It's Russia, right? So Russia, Russia is, is, you know, it's a bit of a boogeyman for the West. Russia is not a huge country. It has 120 some odd million residents, and it's not rich, whereas Europe the European Union has 400 million residents. It's quite rich. The United States has 330 million residents. It's quite rich. And yet Russia seems to somehow be able to throw its geopolitical weight around in a highly disproportionate way. I mean, its population is substantially smaller than Indonesia. And yet you don't hear about Indonesia saying, you know what we're going to do? We're going to invade our neighbor and we're just going to annex some territory because it's good for us. And you don't then, you know, one, that doesn't happen. And then two, the rest of the Western world or the Eastern world doesn't go, oh, what? Oh, ah, oh my gosh, right? That doesn't happen. Russia has seemed to always outplay what you would think were its geopolitical strengths. And this is in part due to its natural resource position, in particular with respect to hydrocarbons, and in particular compared to and in relation to its European neighbors to the west and the fact that the oil price has changed so much and that it's likely to be different so different for so long has changed everything pop quiz what's the largest muslim country in the world is it indonesia it is 260 million people overwhelmingly muslim wow and it's like the fourth or fifth biggest country in the world maybe maybe behind nigeria or brazil i don't know but huge, massive. I mean, almost as big as the United States. Almost. 
Yeah. And they're not running around invading, you know, Brunei Darussalam or Papua New Guinea or Malaysia or any of that garbage. <laughs> no, indeed, they're not. <laughs> so, Russia. We, uh, we kind of already alluded to the degree to which Russia is dependent on oil and gas revenues. It used to be something like 50% of their state revenues. Now it's shrunk. It's more like a third, 35%. But as a result of this, Russia has been running deficits. They have been, they have been digging into their reserves, which have been depleting. I think they, and they anticipated that their reserve fund was going to be run dry this year. In fact, it might already have, and they would have to switch to supporting their deficit through spending in their sovereign wealth fund, which is challenging for a bunch of different reasons. They don't have as much control over it as the reserve fund and all that. But the political challenge with these deficits is social services are getting cut. Of all Russian retirees, something like 90% depend on their public pension. And if there's no money, people are going to see a decrease in their pensions. There's just, what else are you going to do? So what we're seeing right now is there's this guy named Kudrin who is one of uh, Putin's economic advisors. And for years, he's been advocating more liberal economic measures, you know, saying we need to make the justice system more fair. We need to create incentive for investments. Uh, we need to cut spending. And one of the things that he is really pushing for hard now and is is actually cutting pension expenditures. And what makes this time different is it seems like Putin's actually beginning to consider his proposals. Because before, you know, he says, you hear cut pensions and the guy in charge goes, no, 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 that'll never work. But now he's kind of running out of options. Another thing he's been asked to 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 do is prepare proposals outlining what an increase in the current personal tax rate would be. Right now, nationwide, individuals have a flat 13% tax in Russia, and Kudrin has been asked to basically put together a proposal for what a 17% tax would look like and what sorts of revenue that would raise for the central government. And you might be wondering, you know, hey, Zandernerk, you've, you've said that Saudi Arabia is running a deficit. Is that implied that, that, that it is new? Russia's running a deficit. Is it an implication that that's new? And yes, it is new. And you may be wondering, wait a minute, I live in uh, the United States or Britain or Canada or one of those other countries that we're always running a deficit. I mean, and we complain about it, but it doesn't seem like a big geopolitical, you know, hubbub or to do. And, and why, why would it be different? Why is it such a big deal to have a deficit for once? I mean, I remember Bill Clinton, you know, putting a big zero on a placard that showed, oh my gosh, the United States in 1999 had no deficit? Crazy town. And not to be supporting endless deficits, there are a couple reasons why deficits are less dangerous for countries that are running on, in particular, the euro and the US dollar. Uh, one of them is that because they're highly diversified economies, they tend to just keep growing. Even if they're growing pretty slowly, they tend to just keep growing. Uh, and they're less dependent on, you know, shocks to the world system. And so when the United States or European countries take some debt, they're going to say, look, we're taking debt now, but we're growing at 2% per year. You know, and, and what that means is that in the future, we'll, be able, we'll have a lot more money to be able to pay this because compounding interest is pretty cool. The other reason is that in particular, when you, you're the United States, you can print money and you cannot print money to pay your debt. That's not allowed. But what you can do is you can print money to... 
uh, drive inflation, which means that as a proportion of your GDP or of the money you have available, uh, that debt is now just worthless, right? And so for these countries, debt is less scary to the government. But when you're Saudi Arabia or Russia and you're in a position of, oh my gosh, my economy is shrinking, uh, where we have to cut back on social spending, which means that that's going to hurt the demand side of our economy. And we don't have a regime that's able to just print a bunch of money and drive inflation and that's going to work for us. Uh, deficits start to become pretty scary because you can't look to the to the future and say, look, this is just how we'll end up taking care of it. Russia and Saudi Arabia, if they're going to deal with these deficits in the long term, need to find new ways to get revenue that aren't, I wouldn't want to say guaranteed, but that aren't likely in the way that for a European or US country, it is likely. And this becomes riskier if the country has a lot of foreign debt. And I actually don't know the share of Russia or Saudi Arabia's foreign debt, so I can't pull that out. But it's a dynamic worth mentioning. Because if you have a lot of debt that's denominated in your domestic currency, for example, you can you can kind of print. I mean, there will be repercussions to printing money. But if you can devalue your currency a little bit and pay it back with cheaper rubles, for example. However, if you owe, instead of like, 6 billion rubles, you owe $250 million, devaluing your currency just actually makes it more expensive for you to pay back that foreign debt. Yeah, exactly. So the United States, the vast majority of its debt is serviced by domestic lenders, uh, the public, you know, it's called public debt rather than foreign debt. The vast majority of its debt is public. It's all in dollars. If you devalue it, no problem. And yeah, I don't know what Saudi Arabia and Russia are working with, but Russia's ruble has declined so much in value and the economy has shrunk that between 2013 and now, in U.S. dollars, its economy used to be, in 2013, $2.2 trillion. It is now $1.3 trillion, which is almost cut in half. Now, again, this is largely due to the decline of the ruble. So in Russia, you haven't lost half your money. What it means is that you can't buy stuff from overseas as easily. And if you owe people money overseas, holy smokes, it's now become almost twice as much as it used to be compared to what you've got. And that's frightening. So all this means that Russia's budget, including its defense budget, has been shrinking. And over time, this erodes its ability to project power. And, um, you know, not really that it actually has that much ability to do that now. I mean, people will point to Syria, they will point to Ukraine, but really Syria is a relatively small intervention, all things considered. The ground troops are pretty small. There's a bunch of air missions that are being run, but it doesn't actually cost Russia a ton of money. Now, Ukraine is actually really important for Russia. And a lot of people in the West, you know, they look at that and they say, oh, man, here's Russia just taking over land like the Nazis. You know, it's the first time borders have been changed in Europe since World War II. What is the problem with this guy Putin? Well, the thing is, when you, when you look at it from a Russian perspective and consider their history, Russia's been invaded through a long, flat plain, the great European plain, so many times in its history, essentially through where Ukraine is. I mean, you have Sweden in the 18th century in the Battle of Poltava, where Peter the Great pushed back the Swedish monarch and 
really began to cement his rule over uh, uh, the Russian Empire. You had Napoleon in the early 19th century, and then, of course, you had Hitler in in the mid-20th century. So Russia has this historical memory of just being hit over and over and over through this flat plain. And now they look at Ukraine and they see what to them looks like Western intervention in, in the Ukrainian government trying to establish a pro-Western government, and it looks like they're just getting encircled again. And they've, they've read that story a couple of times. So not having enough money to spend on defense and protect their borders along that plain and create this buffer zone is really a huge problem for them. Yeah, so they see Ukraine, and in particular Crimea, because it gives them that warm water port facing west so they can have a navy that's not dependent on potentially a pro-Western government. But having that border region in Ukraine as well is so important to them, but it is so costly to maintain that support of the rebels in Ukraine and also probably you know have a bunch of troops there that... They have to sit down and say, man, we, we now have to make a decision about whether we're going to continue trying to intervene in Ukraine, which is critical for us long term to protect ourselves from being, you know, from essentially a coup de grace. Or uh, do we cut that spending in order to spend money somewhere else? We're just out of money. And so we see Russia starting to develop even more constraints than it's had. And if you listen to the Reconsidering Russia series, you saw that Russia has a lot of fears, a lot of insecurity, and a lot of constraints at the same time. It makes for a really scary situation. Now their constraints are starting to grow in number and their ability to act in service of their security imperatives is shrinking. And the problem for Russia isn't just money. The problem for Russia is also the fact that one of the things that gave it some leeway in the past was the fact that so much of Europe was dependent on Russia for hydrocarbons. And this meant that there was only so much an individual European country was willing to do to oppose Russia, lest Russia decide, you know what, we're going to turn off the pipe to you and make your life a living heck. But now, that's starting to change. Yeah, so while Russia uses oil both for its budget and for geopolitical purposes, and there, there's the infrastructure there running to Western Europe in order to support these sales and potentially cut off oil to Western Europe, the U.S. is now beginning to offer a different option. There's this thing called liquefied natural gas gas which can be shipped so it's not it's sent in a liquefied form and not and not a gaseous form and the u.s is is just beginning to try this out with poland and lithuania who have built the infrastructure needed the ports in order to take those ships in and then the i actually don't know if they're pipelines but whatever the infrastructure is to actually move the the, the liquefied natural gas inland there's a there's a whole set of of infrastructure, terminals, transportation, and distribution channels needed to accommodate LNG. So it can't just be built overnight. However, like I said, you, you have Poland and Lithuania beginning to try it out. And those two countries are actually quite dependent on Russian oil and gas. Now, Russia obviously doesn't want this to happen and is going to fight it. And the U.S. would prefer to have Russia weak and will encourage it. So a few months ago, when the U.S., 
Actually, was it a few months ago, the sanctions? I don't know. Anyways, the U.S. very recently imposed sanctions on Russia. It was either a month ago or a couple of months ago. You saw Germany getting very angry, and you think, why? Germany's on our side. And, you know, Russia, we, we need to penalize Russia for its its involvement in, in, in invading Crimea. And why, why does Germany care? And it's because these sanctions also targeted companies involved with joint projects with Russian oil companies. And these companies can be from any country. So if it's a German company that worked together with a Russian company in a joint venture to build a pipeline between Russia and Germany, then German companies are going to fall under this category and also be penalized. We have, you'll see on the show notes, uh, if you go to reconsidermedia.com slash podcast and click the show notes here, you're going to see this great map of different countries in Europe that have different portions of their oil on one map and gas on the other map imported from Russia. And you have countries such as Poland and Lithuania who are in a lot of ways very antagonistic towards Russia. Again, Russia had them behind the Iron Curtain. Lithuania was even part of the Soviet Union, not by choice, right? And used to be literally contained by Russian dominance. These guys are worried about Russia long-term because they understand that Russia needs those border states. And guess what? They're right there. They ain't moving anytime soon. But at the same time, they have deep dependence, especially Lithuania and Poland, but also uh, Bulgaria, Slovakia, uh, to some extent Germany, a little bit less France, to a big extent Finland. They have a high dependence on Russian oil and gas right now. And this severely constrains what they can do because they don't want that pipeline turned off. Because if you think you're Lithuania and you're getting stuff from Russia, if Russia turns off that pipe, it's tough for Russia, but it's way tougher for you. And so you're going to resist ticking off Russia too much if Russia is willing to make that play. Germany, same thing. It's at less of a threat from Russia directly. However, um, it does, Im and it imports a little bit less oil from Russia as a total proportion. However, Germany doesn't want to disrupt its domestic economy for the sake of sort of abstract geopolitical needs of the United States and of Eastern Europeans like Lithuania, Poland, etc. And so what it means is that as long as Russia has this capacity to manipulate oil flow into Western Europe, it's going to be able to constrain the behavior of potential adjutants against its foreign policy in Europe. But if the United States is able to increase its liquid natural gas exports or even oil exports to Western Europe, over time, Russia's ability to influence the foreign policy of European countries is going to decrease. And just a side note, if you do go and check out this graphic that we're going to put on on the show notes, which I think is very helpful to conceptualize Europe's dependency geographically, you'll see that the two other Baltics, Estonia and Latvia, uh, it, it looks like they're not shaded in at all for oil. And um, when, I, when I put together these graphics, the, the reason is because there is actually no data for them. It, I, don't, I don't actually think that they receive 0% of their oil from Russia. Uh, I just I couldn't find information from the the uh, Eurostat data source that I was using. So just you know, side note there. 
Oh, these are some nice maps. I can't believe you. Well, I can believe, but I didn't know you made them. Nice work. Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't do the graphics, but I did all the all the data collection and then worked with our crack graphics team over at GPF. Well, nice work on the for the crack graphics team there. Yeah. Bravo. So we've we've gone country to country. We've sort of explained the dynamics of shale that has emerged in the last couple of years. Taking a step back, what's the big picture? Well, the U.S is really no longer dependent, uh, or at least it's becoming very much less dependent on the Middle East for hydrocarbons, petroleum, and so on. And this changes the calculus. It also eliminates a number of constraints that the U.S. previously faced. Russia, who has played, a, who has continuously played a role in Europe after the Second World War that is much larger than its GDP or its population would suggest is starting to lose some of those things that make it so powerful. At the same time, Russia has, despite being very influential and powerful, been very insecure since the end of the Cold War. Unfortunately for Russia, the trend towards cheaper oil prices and more exports from North America means that its ability to, one, fund its military, two, fund its domestic programs that, you know, keep people happy, bread and circuses and the like, and three, influence European foreign policy are declining. That decline means that Russia has to very broadly reevaluate its foreign policy in order to attempt to meet some of its security imperatives. What this means for Russian's foreign policy, obviously we can't be certain, but it could mean a form of pulling back from Russia or making friends. Just as likely it could mean that Russia does something desperate in order to secure its security imperatives before it loses its power to do so in the long term. But ultimately, what Russia really wants to do is try to find some way to diversify its economy and bring in new revenue to the government, both of which are going to be very difficult, take a very long time, and make some people very, very unhappy. So we hope this episode has been helpful in laying out the contemporary dynamics of oil and natural gas in global geopolitics. And the next time you're talking to someone and, and you know, you ask, well, why did this happen? And they go, oh, well, it's just because oil. You, that might be true depending on context, but now you'll have a better sense of how oil actually plays into the geopolitics and the relations between the major oil producing countries that are really dependent on it. And hopefully... You can engage in that conversation in a way that's more fruitful and can move it forward for both of you. And you walk away learning something new. Yeah. And you'll, I think one of the things to keep in mind about the shale revolution in the United States is that the long-term geopolitical impacts of this have not been fully realized. This is still what you would call a dynamic situation. So we're going to see things change going forward that seemed like sort of givens in the 1990s and 2000s and even early 2010s, in particular in the Middle East, in North America, and in Europe, that are going to be making some long-term shifts because of the geopolitical reality that is changing. And understanding a little bit of how the shale revolution and changing oil prices 
impact people's constraints, their needs, and their you know ability to project power. By understanding that, you'll better be able to interpret and understand why the changes around you are happening. So we've got a lot of great data in the show notes. Again, that's at reconsidermedia.com slash podcast. Click on the link for this post. Um, and if you liked this episode or any other that you've listened to, we would love a review on your favorite podcatcher. Just go write an honest review. It helps us get to more people. And if you really want to help us out, if you think what we're doing is important, we have, of course, the Dan Carlin model of a buck a show on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash reconsider and you can click that buck a show. We really appreciate it. Uh, we actually have a lot of plans for what we were going to do with money when when it starts flowing in in greater amount and if you're really into getting more involved there's a lot of options for you to do that there uh, in the perks section on the right so thanks for listening and with that we'd like to remind you always don't let the pundits do the thinking for you pause and reconsider this is andrew signing off and this is eric signing off A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.